Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 584 of the podcast and it is Friday the 5th of November 2021 as I record this. In today's show, I'm talking to Chrissy Metch about pitching your project to studios based on her many years of experience in the film and TV industry. We discuss what kinds of projects to consider pitching and what to include in a pitch, as well as how the money might work, whether you want to be involved and attitudes to independent creators, which was a question I really wanted to ask, as well as balancing multiple streams of income and time across multiple projects. So that's coming up in the interview section. In publishing and book marketing news, a very interesting development in big publishing as the US Justice Department is suing to block the $2.2 billion publishing deal of Penguin Random House buying Simon & Schuster, saying consolidation would hurt authors and ultimately readers. As reported in The Guardian, the deal would let Penguin Random House exert outsized influence over which books are published in the United States and how much authors are paid for their work. If the world's largest book publisher is permitted to acquire one of its biggest rivals, it will have unprecedented control over this important industry. American authors and consumers will pay the price of this anti-competitive merger, lower advances for authors and ultimately fewer books and less variety for consumers. In a statement, the publishers said they would fight the lawsuit and that blocking the deal would harm authors. DOJ's lawsuit is wrong on the facts, the law and public policy, said Daniel Petroselli, a lawyer for Penguin Random House. Importantly, Department of Justice has not found, nor does it allege, that the combination will reduce competition in the sale of books. So, yeah... This is this is one of those sort of it's when the sort of tiny ants over here are watching the big elephants fighting over there. I know it doesn't really have a massive impact on us, but this is still our industry. And, uh, you know, many of you listening do have um, uh, hybrid deals and, and may already be with one or other of these publishers or both of these publishers. So it does obviously impact authors. But I, I really think with these things... <laughs> You don't have any impact on it, but it's a very interesting thing to watch. So we shall see. In other news, the march of subscription models continues. And just to be clear, I have absolutely no issue with subscription models. Most of us do participate in subscription models uh, as consumers, for example, Netflix or Spotify, and uh, many of us with the ebook and uh, audiobook reading services. I only have an issue with exclusivity. And so good news because Kobo Plus, which is a non-exclusive subscription program, has launched in Australia in partnership with Australian online book retailer Booktopia and also Kobo Plus New Zealand and also in Italy. And yes, this is a non-exclusive program giving book lovers unlimited access to hundreds of thousands of ebook titles for a monthly subscription fee. I will talk a bit more about that in a minute. 
Also on subscription models, Audible launches unlimited subscription in India, as reported by the new publishing standard. Most of the 200,000 titles on offer are in English, and only one Indian language, Hindi, is catered for. By contrast, Storytel offers more than 10 local languages. And of course, many of the books have to be exclusive to Audible to get into that programme, which as ever uh, annoys me. So yes, I just want more non-exclusive programmes. But this story does bring into focus a few of the things I've been talking about. First of all, the need for AI-narrated content, because the lack of audio in local languages is hampered by the fact that there aren't enough narrators or an ecosystem to do it, or it's expensive to get humans to do it, and some of these languages is just not a big enough market. So uh, I'm going to do an episode on AI narration in the next few weeks, month. Um, But I'm wondering at this point, whether AI narration will go mainstream in non-English languages before it reaches English, mainly because customers are crying out for local language audio and AI is really the only way to achieve that at scale in many of these languages. Also, the continuing expansion of subscription models uh, underscores my concerns about digital income trending toward uh, the lower end, i.e. zero, because all you can eat models sort of reduce the overall um, money going to creators, which is why digital scarcity with NFTs and blockchain (laughs) is going to be a good way to add more income streams in the future. Print special editions are worth doing and digital special editions will be worth doing too. So while when I know I talk a lot about the futurist stuff at the moment, it's because we're kind of in this flurry of activity. But what I want you to try and think about is, okay, how do how does the news today, like, for example, the expansion of more uh subscription models into new markets. How does that news impact our income in five years time? How is that going to work? And that's why I talk about a lot of this futurist stuff, because I can see where things are going. And I want to position us so that we can still make a living (laughs) as these changes roll roll out, basically. So that's why I try and talk about both things that are happening right now, but also things that are going to impact us in the future. You know how committed I am to this, uh, to our business of being authors and creative entrepreneurs. Also, a reminder to check your print book prices. We've talked about ebooks and audiobooks, so let's talk about print. <laughs> print book prices uh, need you need to check them basically because paper prices and inflation in general are causing prices to rise. Ingram Spark sent out an email about this a while ago, saying that the sixth of November. So basically now, uh, 2021, would see an increase in printing costs. And so you need to check your catalogue on Ingram Spark. I'm also going to go through my catalogue on KDP as well, because it's quite likely that some of these changes have um, impacted our profit margins in print, as it has done for traditional publishers. The Six Figure Author podcast this week had a discussion on whether it's time to raise prices even on your ebooks because of inflation and the way the model's kind of changing. And that's certainly something I'm thinking about too. I've got a sort of an action on my uh, planning for 2022 to really think about my pricing models and how I want to do that going forward. So as part of your your year-end review, maybe consider your pricing model and whether it's still working for you. And have a listen to the Six Figure Authors show about pricing. It's just a discussion at the beginning of the show. 
So in personal news, I am (laughs) mainly working on pre-recording interviews and scheduling things for the next quarter for both podcasts and um, because we're off to New Zealand in a few weeks time. I also almost finished the preparation of the AI for Authors course, which I should be recording this week and next week. So coming soon on that, I promise a a number of you have emailed me and like, you know, when's this AI course coming because you're interested. So that will be coming soon. Also, how to write nonfiction is currently in a Kindle deal in the UK Amazon store only. It's 99p for the month of November. So that's how to write nonfiction uh, if you want to try that. So thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments this week. Jay Arch on Twitter said, great episode uh, with Mark. I listened to A Mouthful of Air from the start and I absolutely love how Mark makes poetry more accessible. We can never have enough people spreading this message. And Kim Harrison said, what a joy to listen to your interview with Mark McGuinness. His voice immediately shifts me to a more poetic mind space. I listen to his Mouthful of Air podcast on my afternoon walk to my son's school and find it such a welcome break in my day and always leaves me wanting to read and write more poetry. His thoughts on traditional publishing, as well as different forms of income and funding, have given me lots to think about, which is excellent. And I I agree with that. I I used to have, <laughs> uh, I used to think funding was kind of basically for projects that couldn't get, couldn't make money by selling books. Um, or and but now I think that fund there are lots of funding opportunities for creatives, and we should definitely look at them for these more experimental projects. So you can mix and match your income models, which I really like. And then just a couple of people who really enjoyed the interview with Jessica Artemisia. Juan Hidalgo said, amazing NFT episode with Jess Artemisia, a real eye opener. And Gladys Strickland said, I had a rough idea of what the blockchain is. But in the interview, Jess explained it in a way I finally understand. The same with NFTs. The light bulb went off and the penny dropped. I'm early in my writing career, but I see many possibilities for using NFTs once I have an audience. And finally, Runner Who Writes said, I really enjoyed this episode as I put my toe in the water with NFTs. I'm optimistic of the potential with blockchain for author creatives and I'm keenly exploring further alongside diving into the metaverse. So yes, I'm glad the penny dropped for some of you and uh, hopefully also as this goes out, there will have been the Creatokia interview. So I'd love to hear what you think about that and also today's show. Remember, you can tweet me at the Creative Pen with a double N or email me, Joanna, at thecreativepen.com or leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this much more of a conversation. So today's show is sponsored by Kobo Writing Life, which I have used to publish wide since it started out. It is the most international of the platforms with no exclusivity. And I just checked my sales map. I have sold books in 168 countries through Kobo. They sell on their own app, but also partner with specific vendors known within countries to reach more readers. So you can get your ebooks and audiobooks onto Kobo Direct with Kobo Writing Life, Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors and their team of dedicated book lovers are always working hard to help authors reach new readers around the world. With that in mind, Kobo have now expanded their non-exclusive subscription programme, Kobo Plus, to include Australia and New Zealand. And uh, since I got this (laughs) text, it's uh, also Italy as well. With plenty of readers in these territories, this Kobo Plus launch is sure to bring KWL authors a whole new audience. 
If your books are already opted in to Kobo Plus in all territories, then no action is needed. And that applies to me because I am absolutely in with Kobo Plus in all territories. But you can also choose the specific territories you'd like to include. There's no required opt-in time and again, no exclusivity. Hooray! (laughs) You can join in Kobo Plus and also publish on as many other platforms as you like or sell direct. If you have any questions, you can ask KWL's helpful team by emailing writinglife at kobo.com or create your free account today at kobo.com forward slash writinglife. And if you want to sell more books on Kobo, have a listen to episode 539 with Tara Kremen from KWL as she shares lots of tips on how to sell more books with Kobo. Right, so this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time in creating the show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons and especially these limited, uh, well, I say these limited, I'm doing a lot of them. (laughs) The in-between episodes, the futurist shows are all supported by my patrons. Thanks to new patrons uh, in the last week, Jen Sewell, Justin Stewart and Angeline Trevina. Thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. Those of you who've been around for months and years, you're all amazing. And if you support the show with just a few dollars or euros or pounds, whatever, a month, you will get the extra monthly Q&A audio where I answer questions. You'll also get money off my ebooks, audiobooks and courses. So uh, that might be useful if you're considering any of my work. So you can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Chrissy Metch has 20 years animation experience working on projects including The Hobbit, Superman, Man of Steel, Fast and Furious 7 and Jungle Book. She's the co-founder of Fuzzy Duckling Media and Duckling Publishing, specialising in books and shows for children and is also a creative brand consultant. So welcome Chrissy. Thank you, so exciting to be here. Oh, there's so much for us to talk about. But first up, just tell us a bit more about you and why you have moved into books alongside your animation work. Yes, so I've been in the industry for almost 20 years now. I'm a Kiwi from New Zealand, living in London with my son uh, and husband. And my son was born six weeks early. I was actually working on Jungle Book uh, at the time at Weta in Wellington. And I was supposed to finish up the next day and um, have my leaving flowers and all of that. And he decided to come with a crash and a roar and a, <laughs> and a bang um, six weeks early, as it turned out. And they sent my leaving flowers to the hospital. We're both fine, by the way, just in case you're wondering. Um, <laughs> But I always wanted to write. I always did write. And um, around so many uh, creators and writers and directors and producers. And I always had a few ideas at the back of my head. And when my son was born, my brain hadn't had a chance to uh, stop. He slept a lot, as newborns do. And I just was like, you know, what do I do with my time? So (laughs) while he was sleeping, I decided to write some books. And it kind of went on from there. Wow. I'm sure there's some parents listening going, how on earth did you manage all that? I mean, your career does make me feel to, feel tired. Uh, but um, let's, let's talk about right now, because you're currently working on a show for Netflix. You've worked for Disney and other big studios. So how has the industry, I guess the, the film and TV industry changed over your nearly 20 years? God, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, gosh, it has changed so much, obviously, with all the streaming giants that have come in and the other big 
big companies buying each other. I mean, I was at ILM when Disney came and bought them out for, I think it was $4 billion for the Star Wars brand. And, you know, it's, they've changed a lot. And I think with the streaming, you've got access to so much more. You're not going to the theatre and by spending $50 for three people to go see a film or anything like that. You, you can turn on your, your TV and your streaming channel and you've got so much access to that. And then because of that, so much more content is needed and we're all aware of what's going on around us and we want to be involved with all of the content around us rather than going to see a great big Transformers blockbuster or something like that. We want to watch things that are part of everyday life. So yeah, it's been a really interesting ride, that's for sure. Yeah. And do you think the changes have accelerated due to the pandemic? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I work in the animation film industry just to distinguish that. So we've never been busier because you couldn't film with the pandemic. So all of a sudden, all of the animation studios are absolutely swamped while our sisters and brothers in arms and the live action studios are struggling a lot. So it was like a catch-22 here. I'm feeling really awful for people getting furloughed and losing their jobs. And then all of you know my other friends and people and colleagues are getting you know more and more work and especially in the adult uh, parts of this you know I work in kids animation but right now I'm doing an adult animation and because you couldn't film adult content there's been a cry out more for adult animated content to fill those gaps so as I say never before has there been so much content wanted so quickly. Mm-hmm. What the, what do you mean by adult um, animation? I guess everyone has got in their heads more cartoons but what yeah, might come under that? That's right. So obviously anime has been a big part of our life from Japan for, you know, a good many years. And and now with those stories coming out through that have been very successful, animation can be written for adults watching it, not just children. Maybe there might be some swear words or there might be, you know, some more adult type scenes, profanities used, things like that, um, that you wouldn't normally see in animation and more adult content that you would watch as a drama, but as animation. So it's interesting to see the industry turning that way to give content to adults when you can't film it. And then what do you actually do as an animator? Do you do the drawing? Do you write? What, what, what is your role? Um, so I used to be an animator a long time ago. I was one of the very first uh, schools of uh, 3D animation that opened up in New Zealand, one of three girls, I think, in the class at the time. I realized early on that I can't draw, so you don't want me to draw. Um, but I fell in love with cartoons very, very early on with my in comics. My father had a huge, beautiful comic book collection. So I said to myself, you know, I just want to be involved. So I trained as a 3D animator. And my first internship was through a 2D animation uh, Disney studio that was in New Zealand. So I finished that internship knowing everything there is to do about 2D, even though I was doing 3D. And my very first job was on um, New Zealand's animated sitcom Brotown, which is like the Simpsons of the South Pacific. (laughs) And I got to um, tell my parents quite happily that I got to get paid to colour in all day, which was um, so much fun. And then I just fell fell into front of house management. So I just got coffees and paid invoices and helped organize crew and things like that. And I stayed there ever since. So I've worked from the bottom right up to the top. So now I'm producing uh, a show. I have over 200 crew um, in three countries around the world. Yeah, and I love it. And my job is basically to make sure the show gets done on time and on budget in a nutshell. 
Wow. I think that's so cool. And in terms of obviously most people listening, there'll be lots of people listening who are interested in that creative side. But in terms of the actual writing, uh, do you think there are more jobs for writers? Like you mentioned that there's so much content needed and obviously there's scripts and things that need to be written and all the other stuff. Are there more jobs, I guess? Is that the way forward? Yes, absolutely. So every um, piece of content that you watch, there's a script that's written for it. And, you know, the constant need for writers has also increased as the need for content. So every time a TV show is on or animation or film or anything like that, absolutely people are hunting for writers. Which is so, I think this is so interesting. And of course, animation, there's a lot of use of, of computer software. I'm sure there's a lot of AI type tools coming in. And I feel like even with an increase in technology, we're also seeing an increase in need for writers. Oh, absolutely. And I think you had someone on your show earlier on about the gaming industry and it's the emerging. So, you know, the film industry and the animation TV industry and vice versa are all kind of merging with the game industry with their technology. So a lot of that game technology is now available to us to make things much faster and bring those powerful computer times down, which can be, you know, a cause for why things take so long. Mm. But now with the gaming technologies coming into play and everything else in the virtual reality, it's a huge part and it's coming across, which is so much fun to see that. Yeah, it was such exciting times. Now, most writers, uh, myself included, we would all love a film or TV deal <laughs> with, I say one of the big studios, but I, I don't think it means that anymore. I guess it means we, we would love Netflix or Amazon Studios or anyone. Most of us would love anyone. <laughs> but you work with a lot of people, you do pitch consultancy. But let's start from the top. What kind of projects should we even consider trying to pitch for these different types of media? I think that's a really, really good question. And, you know, the trends change quite a lot. So I would do your homework as well with what those trends are. For instance, um, because of the pandemic with children's uh, programming or children's animation, they very wanted uh, a sense of community, a sense of safety, and they wanted it to be about real kids. They weren't really into a cat show or a dog show or an alien coming down from a planet show. They really wanted all the shows to be with that community in mind and to let kids know that you can still have fun at home, we can still go out and be with your friends and all of that so that's been a a huge trend that has come out recently because of the pandemic but you know then they'll want a dog show or a cat show or an alien show (laughs) um, you do and all of this information can be on all of their websites so you can look up like Disney and you can see what the trends are purely by what's on their what they're showing right now and a lot of them will have in there what they're looking for and you can even submit uh, to their Uh, platforms as well a lot of them have that open from time to time but the other thing I would you know really recommend is each streamer or each company are very specific so for instance um, Disney are very female uh, one main protagonist led is what they like in their shows Um, Apple um, are very much a bit glossy like they want their show to probably be something that could appear in a magazine so it's not just always about the story it's got to have that match to the company that's involved in the you know Netflix are very original they like something quite different that no one else is doing before so if your story is a a common story it would need to have some kind of twist in there that hasn't been done or or is quite different you know so each each company is quite different to each other so I really recommend that especially and then you know having the universal appeal so 
if your show is set in Australia, for instance, it probably won't appeal that much to the Netflix global team. You might want to just pitch into Australia, for instance, or if you did have an Australian show, it needs a more of a global theme to go with it. And it's like you said, you have to do your homework. There's no single answer to this, is there? It's <laughs> yeah. each, and, and as for trends, I mean, the trend now, I mean, like, for example, uh, I've just finished a, a novel and I've put an author's note that said, yes, I have completely ignored the pandemic. No one's wearing a mask and there's no discussion of, of COVID. I've just decided to ignore it. And I feel like there was a, a point where people wanted pandemic content. And now I feel like almost people are sick of it. So a trend can appear and then disappear you know what I mean absolutely and I think it's because I do pitch quite a lot and at that time they'll tell you no they're not looking for that but you can bring that back out in six months time and go back around again you know what I mean so it's like a lucky dip (laughs) Mm. and so when you say you pitch a lot tell us what does that mean what what is the process of of pitching so when I started I had no idea either and you know I've been working in industry for a long time and I wanted to kind of get involved with pitching original content and my ideas and other people's ideas So I was doing some research and there's three or four or five festivals that you can go to as an average person off the street yourself and go and pitch. And so I thought, well, why can't I do that? So so, so I did some research about what you should have with you and I booked a a ticket to Miami (laughs) and I went to an amazing uh, festival there called Kids Screen and you literally pay a ticket and you rock on up and you do speed pitching and with literally industry's best. I mean, I pitched to Disney and um, Ardman and all these amazing studios because they're looking for ideas and it doesn't matter if you are super famous or not, or you've done like a thousand things, you can buy a ticket and go to any of these festivals and see what it's like. And they've all been online, which has been so great actually, because they're much cheaper and um, mm. You don't travel quite far to get there. <laughs> so, so that's a place that I started. And then from there, I have all the contacts that I can use and keep reusing and follow up with time and time again. And I don't have to go to the festival. So I can just pitch to them directly due to those contacts I made at those festivals. So, and that's what I do now. So as it comes around, I'll go, I've got an idea. I've got a new Bible. May I pitch this? And they'll say, yeah, do it. Gosh, so many questions. So first of all, I want to go to the speed pitching because I have done this and I I don't know whether it's an introvert thing, a British thing or just a thing, but it's really, really hard and you have to be pretty quick, don't you? So what are your top tips for speed pitching? You do have to be very fast. I would write it down and almost have a script. Um, You have to say what your lead statement is. So, you know, a woman gets murdered in the dark and she's being chased by aliens. Then I would say what the format is. Is it 90 minutes? Is it two hours? Is it a short film? Say who your audience is. It's for children. It's for, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then that's it pretty much. <laughs> so, Right. And then they know immediately whether or not they're interested because... Yeah. And, and hopefully you've also picked someone who might be interested in that. Like there's no point in me as an adult thriller writer pitching at a children's festival, for example. Exactly. And also they know what they've got on their slate. So you might have this amazing idea and think it's absolutely original, but they said, oh, you know, we've just signed up for that one thing. We don't want another one. So for instance, if they have a dog show, they don't want another dog show. So when you do your lead statement, you give a brief synopsis of it, what, who it's targeted at, they'll know straight away whether they want to talk to you more. And so what, obviously, again, we're assuming that most people listening are authors. 
first. So we have a, a book uh, or a series of books, possibly even a, a whole world. But you mentioned the word Bible. So do we would we need that when pitching or can we just have books or what is the process there? If you're pitching in person, they usually won't. I mean, they might flick through some documentation, but usually they they want to know very quickly what you're about and what your idea is about. So it's nice to have your book, but it's not completely necessary. But you will need it for electronic uh, pitching or electronic, you know, digitally sending it to them to follow up. But you don't need it to start with. So I always tell people if you've got a book and obviously you can't meet with them face to face, you will need a document to send about how it could be, you know, transferred into an animated show or a film or, you know, a piece of content. And can independent authors even consider pitching their books? Because I I did a screenwriting course at the, the NFTS and there was an agent there and we all had our practice pitches. And the, the sort of the, the point he made was, it, it, why, why don't you have your traditional publishing agent pitch this? Because that's what they do. They have the relationships or, you know, why don't you have a film agent? So it, it was... I felt it was very off, off-putting for someone who is an independent author uh, to get into this. I Yeah, I agree. It can be overwhelming as well. But to be honest, I think all of those rules have gone out the door, <laughs> <laughs> especially with the pandemic. But to be honest, before that, I think they were also going out the door. The, the age, I mean, film agents still definitely exist. But nowadays, it's not a necessary, you know, deal to have that. It's kind of finding those connections yourself and getting there and if you do it from you it's almost better they want to hear from the creators they want to hear from the authors they want to hear the heart and soul that is around your story more than an agent and of course there still are agents and there's still a big industry for that but with the traditional publishers they do have a great list that they can go and you know pitch to media and normally it's the other way around normally it's the distributors and the the broadcasters that will go to the agents asking if they've got a great book or something that they think they could pitch, but they don't have all of the materials ready, if you know what I mean. So if you turn up and you're there and you've got all your materials ready, you've thought about it, you've got a strong pitch, you've got your Bible or documentation, or you've thought about how it could work, you know, your pitch is not going to be better than an agency's pitch or anyone else's. So when you do this for other people, uh, let's pretend it's me. <laughs> what sort of things do you ask authors when you said they're uh, having a strong pitch in the materials? What would you ask authors to to have? I guess my first question is, what is your dream deal look like? Because it's about expectations. And if we don't know that at the start, um, for one example is one woman I'm working with, she's amazing. And she said, my dream deal is to get this on Disney. I have no interest in working with Netflix. And that was just something that she was really passionate about. And I get, okay, got it. So I always ask, what is your dream <laughs> to mm. get with your book or your story? Like, where do you want to go? What, you know, where do you, do you just want to be small and make a small indie short film? Or do you want to go massive? Because then I can quickly either burst the bubble or, or help them along the stepping stones to get closer to that. Because if, if you said to me, Joanna, you wanted to create an X film out of your books, that's going to cost $100 million. That's fine. That's absolutely fine. But we need to cater towards that. And it will probably be a very long journey as opposed to pitching to a children's series. And you can rehash that for the next season and the next season. 
Well, and that's the thing when I did pitch my, uh, it was basically the first in my Matt Walker trilogy. And the the, the agent said, yeah, that's going to cost between 100 and 200 million uh, to make. And I was like, okay, thanks. Uh, so, and I think you're right. I mean, that consideration of budget and what it would take to make that. Although it's interesting, even thinking about animation, or even I've now been thinking about audio drama for that project, because let's face it, audio drama is a lot cheaper. Okay. But then I've got another series, which is just, you know, a a detective in London, and that as a budget would be a whole lot smaller. So I think as you you talk about expectations, is it a case of finding shows that we think are similar and looking at what's entailed in that, I guess? So, for example, Jessica Jones would be more like my detective series, although it's set in London. Yeah, exactly. It's better to have that. And then if you want to go down the road, we can create a pitch package um, with you to help you be on the right path as opposed to just putting it in the dark. You know, you would need a script and some visual aids and a real strong premise and all of those things. But if you know what you want to, I mean, yes, 100 million is a lot of money, but who's to say someone doesn't want to make it for 100 million as well? Like you don't know until you pitch it. So, and I always say, what have you got to lose? Like, really, what have you got to lose? You know, you can only get a no, but you've got it, you've done the process, you've got it all there, and it might be a no this year, but it might not be a no next year or in 10 years as the industry changes and the trends change. And, you know, with big global giants too, like Netflix and Disney and all of those, they've got so much money. So, (laughs) Well, it's interesting that what have you got to lose? And I did go down this rabbit hole a few years ago and I definitely do not want to do screenwriting, but I feel like there's a difference between being a sort of rights holder, creator of IP who wants to license that in some way. You don't have to, uh, as in an author who wants to do this, doesn't have to write the script right you mentioned no, if you have a pitch and like you mentioned visual aids what are you talking about there yeah so you definitely don't have to be the person that write the scripts I've got a lovely team around me um, that writes scripts for me and for um, people that I work with which is great so you don't have to be the person that does everything I also have um, an amazing uh, bible pitch bible designer she's in Russia that she designs all my bibles for me and in visual aids I mean creating a visual element to tell your story so if it's you've got your cover and everything like that which, and well children's books is the easiest so what I do with people is I get they've got all the content there the illustrated content already exists so it's literally pulling out the illustrated content into a pitch visual aid and you know expanding on that so if you've got a character called Mary and she you know collects fish or whatever it is it's it's talking about her dislikes her strengths her weaknesses and putting that into the pitch bible to talk about that in the story and themes themes is a huge one what is the theme of your journey what do you want to get across so it's pulling out all of those little details and giving them a visual aid and when I say visual it doesn't have to be characters it could be scenery it could be just it's just putting it together in a format that is visual Mm. you know because on your books it's all written words so it's just pulling out those things that are important to you into a pdf document or whatever you want to show as a visual feeling uh, for your story for instance I work with one book which is about cancer and it's a, a film for children but we use color to help with that mood and getting that theme across so it's not too scary so more darker times are 
gray and black and white and then when it gets better things are more colorful and in the pitch bible it reflects that so it's like a journey through those emotions as well as um what you've written I think that's really interesting and I feel like you know let's face it a lot of writers get quite intellectual about words <laughs> because that's, <laughs> that's what we do but what you talked about there was theme and feeling and emotion and colour and I feel like this is the struggle right the struggle is to go from what okay so that Matt Walker trilogy for example they're quite short books because they're sort of um they're not quite YA, but so, so it's like a 180,000 word total. And in my head, 180,000 words, right? So now just roll that up into theme, feeling and emotion. And it, we get so obsessed with these details of plot and the interesting research and this particular character is really cool. But it's that's too much, isn't it? It's too much for pitch. It is too much. That's right. That is too much. And that's the hardest part with authors. And that's why I love working with authors because it's all in your head. So it's literally, (laughs) I'm just pulling it out um, and putting it onto paper. But the hardest, hardest, hardest part for them is to take 10 pages of a Word document and I put the headings in for them and fill out those 10 pages. (laughs) Because as you say, you're taking 180,000 words and I'm asking you to put those details into 10 pages and then the prettiness and all of the visual stuff comes after that it's making sure those 10 pages are in words to start with are representing your book in a shortened version then I can pull out the colors and the moods and the emotions and from what you've condensed it down to yeah, so fascinating. And I think the more, I mean, this is very good TV now. So, you know, just some excellent TV. And I think that mood and emotion, I mean, the success of Bridgerton, for example, which hit in the winter here during the pandemic. And I know I don't normally watch I'm not a very romantic my husband really is but uh, I was like this is exactly what I need you know I don't want to watch violence I want to watch some uh, romantic thing and of course it was absolutely huge at the time and it still is huge obviously and that was partially set here in Bath so <laughs> I was very happy about that but it's that emotional side is so important and yeah it's something I need to do more in my own writing is focus on that feeling as an overarching thing as opposed to getting obsessed with everything else although we have to do both I suppose yes (laughs) yeah so do you pitch all kinds of projects or do you focus mainly on children's I do pitch all kinds I I focus more on animation than film just because that's my experience of working which has always usually been with animation or visual effects and just to um, help with the difference visual effects is done with live action so for instance your transformers and um fast and furious and all of those types of things so it's filmed but we put in all of the effects and animation that goes on top of that so that's more of my experience of working so that's the kind of stuff that I usually help with or pitch around interesting and then just on you personally because you obviously now as we talked about at the beginning you have a book publishing and media company uh, for children's projects you also have your own books which you turn into other things and it's great to look at your website because as you said you've got your you've got the characters you've got some songs you've already done all these kind of IP things and then so w- w- if you're planning a book what are the things that people can consider in terms of these possibilities? I think, again, it goes back to what is your target audience? Is it in your home country or is it in a global market? But for me, I try, unless I specifically, um, I'm doing a children's book at the moment that is specifically for the UK and I wanted to do that before I go home. But if you need to know what it's for and if you are going for a global type 
film or TV series or book, that's easier to pitch, obviously. But having said that also, if you are going for more of your own countries or in surrounding areas or a particular feel or a theme, you can apply for local funding in your own countries. A lot of creative money is available to do that with your own countries. Like New Zealand's got it, Australia's got it. And I'm sure there's so many other countries that have that where they will give you money for even developing it into a script which is something you should look into. But of course, with that, you would have to have local content within your local areas. It's interesting. Earlier, you said, what have you got to lose? And it feels to me that the biggest thing that one loses is time in that we only have a certain amount of time and everything in this process. As you said, when you started out, you went to all the festivals, you did the, it's about developing the relationships and knowing how it all works rather than is it better to work on the next book? I think that's the biggest question that people often have. Exactly. Time is so precious, isn't it? I know. Um, (laughs) It's the hardest part of everything, time. But I guess it goes back to, you know, what is your goals? Like, what do you actually want to achieve in life? Like, if it is your dream to get your book made into a film or a TV show one day, then do it. I know that sounds really simple, but you could, you know, even if you put aside 10 minutes in the morning or 10 minutes in the afternoon or whatever it works, you just chip away at it. And that's how I've done all of mine. You know, they don't happen overnight. They don't happen tomorrow. It's it's a little bit each day in the pockets of life that you find that I help everybody and work on my own bits and pieces. And you get there, you know, you do get there. Mm, That's actually a really good tip. I think, I mean, that's how I wrote my first books in the first five years of having a day job and building up this business was all on the side in between doing the rest of things. So yeah, we all have to make that choice. Uh, But okay, so one of the reasons that people think they want these deals is because they think there's a lot of money involved. (laughs) So tell us a bit more about how the money works in film and TV for the writer, basically. Obviously, you're a producer now, which is different. That's a really good question and I'll do my best, but it's different for every studio, obviously, and it's also different for every project. For instance, one of the writers I'm working with, um, he did it on spec, which means um, he wrote it because he loved, uh, this was going back to the beautiful cancer story, he absolutely loved it, so he wrote it out of his heart and soul, and then if it gets picked up, we've agreed that he will get a certain percentage of that deal, and that would go into the pitch if it got along to that part of it. If we start talking money and budgets and things like that, it's like, this is the writer, he's the original writer, he will get a percentage of, of X budget to go back to him, or he would get a writer's fee out of it. Mm. Um, so that's one way to do it. The other way is, um, obviously, is pitching yourself as a writer off the show, um, so you can do your Uh, your pitch without the script I do that all the time that's very easy and part of that if they pick it up is is developing the script with you so if you the great thing about being an author and if you did want to write your own script that's a a great package for them they would probably look at purchasing or co-joining the IP with you or just buying it buying the idea and with that you can ask to be a writer that goes on there for you know to be paid to write your your movie (laughs) yes and there's a very good book called Hollywood versus the author have you read that I've got it here next to me (laughs) 
that is a I mean I, I listened to it on audio as well and I've got it in print and that is a must read I think in yeah. order to be as you say realistic and there's some good stories in there there's some bad stories there's some absolutely mm-hmm. awful stories in there yeah. so yeah it's buyer beware isn't it really yeah and I think it's I won't say it's gotten better but I think there's more options now since the pandemic and all of those contents come out you know I think there's more conversations going on with the you know IP owners and the writers and everything like that and there's way more collaboration going on between everybody too so it's not so you know cutthroat and you have to do this and you have to do that as you have to work together to achieve that and I think that's been a really great thing that's an outcome that's come out of it. Actually, that I think that is interesting. And I do think collaboration is something that perhaps authors are not so good at because we do tend to work alone. And it, and if people do co-write, it's often just with one other person, for example. Whereas, you know, what you're talking about, you said you've got 200 crew <laughs> on your net on this project. And uh, yeah, I feel so any sort of tips on having a more collaborative attitude, I guess, on being open to it, but also protecting yourself. I think being open to it is just is the struggle and I think if it's it's easy for me because I'm working with you know authors and yourself and you're already passionate about your project so I'm not dragging you through the mud um, and making you do it and it's the same with my crew you know they're passionate about what we're making and that makes you collaborative once you've started the journey and you've decided yes I want to go down this path you will find yourself being more collaborative than what you were before and at the beginning, I'm always very sensitive because it is someone's idea and very story and it, it's your baby that you're talking about developing. And I think, you know, the people in this industry as well and in the author community, if you've decided it's easy to be protective of it and once you get to that point, it's hard to let go, isn't it? It's really hard to <laughs> let go. Well, I think, and it's interesting, the more I learned about it, the more I, you know, some people are like, yeah, yeah, I want to write the screenplay, I want to be involved in it. And then other people are like, no, you sign a licensing deal and it's gone and it's not yours anymore. And in fact, it's better for your sanity if you say it's not yours because an adaptation can be amazing or it can be terrible and you don't necessarily have any control. (laughs) Well, you don't have any control. (laughs) Yeah, and I think what, in my experience, is before it gets to that path, you know, I've been pitching a show for a while now and it's we're in month five, I think, and it's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And we're not even at the stage of um, talking money or rewrites or anything like that. And I think once they get to that stage, they know you really mm-hmm. well. They've had these conversations with you. They've taken the time to get to know who you are and what you, makes you tick. That's what I've found anyway. And so when it does come up to this point, of talking about your involvement and everything like that I really think the door is open and I don't think they'll shut you out yes from my experience at the moment mm. although as I said you might want to be it might be yes like, okay. you might want to be yeah <laughs> and that's even better if you've got for an author out there if you've got an idea honestly and you want to sell it makes it very easy for the, the broadcasters and the streamers much better once you've got your pitch by when you're like I just want to sell this and yeah they're like okay <laughs> I kind of I kind of feel like that myself after I you know I have actually got a script for this first Matt Walker and then I was like okay do you know what I am not I don't think that's what I want to do <laughs> Yeah. So it, it is, it, but this is such an interesting area. And I mean, I also think that what's well, so funny, my mum, who's, she's what, she's 77 or whatever. She has such a negative view of TV. Like she's, it, she, we weren't allowed a TV when I was growing up. 
<laughs> because she and but to be honest back in the 80s tv wasn't so good was it good. no no it really wasn't very good and she'd be like tv rots your brain it's awful and she still got that attitude she thinks computer games are terrible you know she's from that sort of generation but finally in the pandemic I got her on Netflix <laughs> Yay! And, and it's, I feel like, you know, obviously, we've all spent a lot more time at home watching things. And so in this, turning our IP into visual projects, I think, has become perhaps even more important because people are spending more time doing that. Do you see, I mean, I don't want to go too too far ahead, but in terms of your animation, you started with 2D, you went to 3D. Do you see into the future in terms of metaverse projects or like you said, things were merging with gaming? What do you see coming for yeah. IP? It's so exciting. I do see it in the future, you know, with my son and he's six and with the virtual reality, everything, you know, I'd love if, if they could interact with it. That's because I understand with your mum, even with my son and in my industry, screen time and him, I'm not so keen on just because I don't want to burn his brain out so early, but I wish it was interactive more in front of their, in front of their faces. And I don't think it's going to be long and they won't have to put the goggles on and, and play that game or take the goggles off and it will be part of, the character and you see how they interact with the iPad. Now that character can come and talk to you on your iPad, you can QR code. And then there's another little thing that they can go to and another little thing that they can go to. But you know what I was saying to one of the ladies I'm working with, she's got this amazing iconic character in her book. And I said, can't you hear her talking to you in your head? And she's like, I can actually. I'm like, well, amazing. Imagine if she was the narrator of your series and then she popped up and she was a virtual reality character that appeared to the kids and started talking about traveling or scientific experiences or anything like that. I think that's going to be so exciting in the future for them for sure. So should is that something we should even be considering if we're looking at pitching is how might IP be used in other media like gaming, like VR, that type of thing? Yes, I think it's a very strong thing to do. So if you're cross-platforming, it's great. So if you can, one of the things I do is if, it, if I've got a movie pitch, I also sometimes have a TV pitch alongside it. You know, I say this could be pulled out and these kids can be detectives and they're going off to find a mission. And that could be a series as a spin-off from the film, which can help um, sell it. So if you've got an idea that could also be a game or a virtual reality experience, or you've had people on the show that did board games and cards and things like that. So anything spin off, there's a section in your pitch you can put in there, you know, marketing or external things that you can go with it. So you can do that and it just makes it stronger. It doesn't, you don't have to, but absolutely. Seems it's just uh, creating IP. It just seems like a, a really golden age. I know they keep saying that about TV, but it's not just TV now. It's like everything is expanding. Absolutely everything, and they and all the streamers and everybody else wants a brand that can go across them all because that's the ideal, isn't it? That's the golden ticket. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then just fi- finally, before we're out of time, sort of circling back to you. So obviously, you have your son and your family. You've got this demanding day job. Let's not forget, you actually have a day job and a publishing media and consulting business. So how do you balance your time and these multiple streams of income for, I guess, sanity and creativity? creativity um great question so yes it's definitely challenging during every day but it's a challenge I absolutely love and I think early on when I had my son and I still you know did all these things 
it's flexibility to wake up in the morning and he's sick and it all just falls apart. So I think I lead every day with, especially since the pandemic, with absolutely no expectations for the day. Obviously, we've got our routines that we do every morning and everyone does and, you know, you stick to those as much as possible. But having no expectations of every day has changed my life and it's made me a nice mum <laughs> um, and a nice parent and a nice you know, boss at work. And, and I expect that also for all of my crew. So they have the same thing. I don't have expectations on them. And because we have such tight uh, deadlines of filmmaking and everything is due, they all know when things are due. And I think I've just got a fantastic crew and we all help each other. So if someone gets sick or ducks out, then another person jumps in to take over what they're doing and help out, including myself, you know, I'm always there to jump in and help out where I'm needed throughout all of my crew. And my family support is incredible. So my husband, his job is quite can be quite flexible. So he can come home whenever he needs to at, within reason. And he's around. And if everything gets turned upside down, he's there. And we've got some cousins here in London who are incredible that are there for us. And so it's just using everybody around you as much as you can and vice versa. We're there for them. But I think the biggest thing is the no expectations for sure. <laughs> And that's so funny because on the one hand you say no expectations for the day and on the other hand you say you have tight deadlines and obviously you you achieve an incredible amount. So to me that's you you clearly work really hard as well as having no expectations which it's a bit bit weird. (laughs) I think I think the no expectations as well is more emotionally you know what I mean like it's so easy to get frustrated or angry or upset at a situation that happened but I've trained my emotions to not to have no expectations of of how the day is going to go. Like, is it going to be the best day? Is it going to be the worst day? Is that going to get done or is that not going to get done? Obviously, we've all got the things we need to hit, but at the end of the day, if things happen, um, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, which, which we've all learned during the pandemic, yeah. of course. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's been the hardest mental um, health shift for everybody is, is not to jump off the handle when things don't go the way it should go and and I think that's been the hardest for the crew and but the clients and the shows and the companies are all more flexible as well because of this but we always get it done on time that's the thing we always get it done fantastic so where can people find you and everything you do online so my last name which is hard to say but it's chrissymetch.com in there and also uh, duckling publishing and fuzzy duckling media but i'm also on facebook twitter um, instagram um, and all of the things linkedin (laughs) so it's really easy to find me and if people are interested in your i guess your pitch consultancy who are the type of uh, clients you're interested in i guess would be the best fit that's a great question. Usually animation or visual effects is probably my strong point and more children's probably animation I can help with with books. But, you know, I'm happy to help with any type of pitch bible steering you in the right direction. And that can be found on my Chrissy dot, well, chrissymetch.com website. Um, I've got a little um, consulting um, tab in there that you can pop into. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Chrissy. That was great. Thanks, Joanna. So I hope you enjoyed the interview with Chrissy and that it gave you some insight into the pitching process and the world of adaptation for film and TV. This week, I have another in-between episode, and because I've been doing so much futurist stuff, I wanted to give you some more up-to-date, right-now things. So I have a conversation with Dave Chesson from Kindlepreneur about keywords and categories and also his new writing and formatting tool, Atticus, which is web-based, 
So whether you're on Mac or PC, you can access it and use it. And uh, we have a great chat. It's always lovely to talk to Dave. So that's coming out uh, toward the end of this week. Then next Monday, I'm talking to author and publisher Michael Baskar from Canelo, one of the fastest growing publishing companies in Europe. We have a wide ranging chat about the publishing industry and Michael's new book, Human Frontiers. It's a great conversation as we are both passionate about books and how technology can help us be better writers and publishers and of course make more money. So uh, always interested to always interesting to talk to someone who's sort of actually running a publishing company. So that is next week. So happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time. <laughs>